Hello, and welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. In her seminal book, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson opens with the hypothetical picture of a once idyllic town that endures so much environmental contamination that all human and animal life perishes. The title of the book alludes to a scenario in which birds have disappeared, having been wiped out by pesticides. The October 2013 issue of IEAM contains two articles that address toxic effects of pesticides on birds. Matthew Ederson is one of the authors, and he's here with us today. Matt is a research scientist with the U.S. EPA in Duluth, Minnesota. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for inviting us to participate in this. It's a pleasure to have you. Would you describe for us how wildlife toxicologists assess pesticide toxicity for birds? Sure. So I'll talk in particular about EPA's process for uh, registering pesticides, and this typically includes three toxicity tests uh, for effects on birds. Um, The first test is an LC50 test that's performed with juvenile birds, and this is a five-day exposure period where birds are exposed to the pesticide in their diet, followed by three days of observation, and the goal of the test is to estimate the LC50. The second test typically available is the LD50 test, and this is uh, done with adult birds in which um, birds are dosed through oral gavage, specific doses, and then observed for a 14-day period, and the goal is to estimate the LD50. The third test that's typically available is the avian reproduction test, and this is a test that lasts typically about 20 weeks. The birds are exposed to pesticide in their diet, for 10 weeks, at about six to eight weeks, the photo period is manipulated to induce the birds to start laying eggs. And so once they start laying, then uh, their reproductive output is observed for a period of about eight to 10 weeks. And during that observation period, the types of information that's collected include information on eggshell thinning, number of cracked eggs, number of eggs laid per hen, number of viable eggs per hen, uh, number of hatchlings per viable egg, and so forth. Those are the three tests that are available for most pesticide registrations. And then a fourth test uh, may be required, and this is a field test in which the pesticide is used under field conditions that are carefully controlled and monitored. And following applications in the field, the goal is typically to count dead birds in the field to uh, assess whether there's any direct mortality associated with a typical application of the pesticide. In the first of these two papers, you and Rick Bennett develop a model to help quantify the effects of pesticides on bird populations, and that model is McNest, as you mentioned before. Could you explain the model in layman's terms and how it predicts pesticide exposure and effects on bird populations? Sure. One observation that you can make about uh, most, especially songbirds that are using agroecosystems, is that many of these birds will lay replacement clutches after a nest fails, and many of them will also attempt another brood after a successful nest. And so typically in a population-level assessment, if we want to assess the effects of pesticide on a population of birds, we need to take into account the total reproductive output of a typical female during the course of a breeding season. So we need to take into account the fact that these birds are laying multiple clutches, whether after failure or after success. 
And so McNest is first and foremost a model of this avian breeding process. And that's where the MC comes in, the Markov chain process. This is a very handy statistical technique for taking into account iterative probabilistic processes. And so McNest deals with this breeding as a uh, cycle that birds go through. They complete a nest and then cycle back to the beginning and start a new nest. Now, during that process, what McNest does for pesticides is it links the effects from these measured effects from toxicity tests to appropriate points in the nest cycle by treating the measured endpoints of the tox tests as surrogates for events that can happen during the breeding cycle. For example, the proportion of hatchlings per viable egg per hen is one of the endpoints that are measured in the avian reproduction test, and this can be seen as a surrogate for embryo toxicity from in ovo exposure leading to reduced hatchability of eggs. And so it's those kinds of linkages that we try and set up in McNast, take measured outputs from the tox test and look for which phase of the nesting cycle that measured endpoint most closely corresponds to and link it to that phase in McNast. And so a consequence of this is that in McNast, a breeding attempt is only susceptible to an adverse effect if it's in a phase of the nest cycle where that type of effect would be of concern. So, for example, nests in a post-hatching phase would not be susceptible to effects on embryos uh, because there are no more embryos. The eggs have hatched, and so the viable eggs per hen endpoint uh, wouldn't apply to that phase. So it's in this way that McNest introduces important phenological aspects of avian breeding to the consideration of pesticide effects. Right. And in fact, one of our editors noted that the focus on life history traits coupled with exposure information was potentially really powerful for highlighting vulnerability and reproductive success for various birds. Could you talk about the different parameters and the importance of each one? Sure. So the types of life history information that we use in McNest include information like the daily background rates of nest failure in the absence of pesticide exposure, dates for the start and end of a typical breeding season, and then durations of time between the end of one nest attempt and the beginning of the nest. And these are often referred to as waiting periods or inter-nest intervals. And they tend to be fairly long if a nest is successful before the bird will attempt a new nest, and then relatively short if a nest fails, the bird will try to reinitiate nesting fairly quickly. And then we also need uh, information on species-specific diet. So this includes percent of invertebrates, seeds, fruits, grasses, and so on. And this is primarily for the uh, the exposure model that we use. And so the other exposure parameters that are required include the pesticide application rate on a hypothetical field, the date of application, and then the half-life of the chemical in the environment. Specifically, that would apply to the, the food types the bird is eating. We've taken a look at some of these parameters to try and get a sense for which ones are the most important by doing sensitivity analyses, gauging the, the reproductive output as a function of modifications of those various parameters, both life history and the uh, toxicity and exposure parameters. And what we've seen is that the most important parameter from a life history perspective is the length of the breeding season. And this is in part because of this iterative process. So birds are going to try and get as many of nest attempts into that breeding season as they can. So a longer breeding season facilitates more attempts. 
And also the background nest survival rates uh, have a very large impact on the total number of successful broods that a bird can pull off. And then of lesser importance are the um, clutch size, uh, which was a bit surprising to us. The clutch size had relatively little impact. And then the duration of the incubation period and inter-nest interval after a failed nest. Now, from the tox perspective, the most important parameters were both half-life and the timing of the application. The, the importance of these two can again be understood in terms of the phenological aspects of, of bird breeding. If the application comes when the bird is in a phase that's susceptible to the kinds of effects that might be produced by a given pesticide, then the influence could be very large. Whereas if the birds have generally already passed that phase of the nest cycle and are into the uh, incubation or nestling rearing phase, say if it's an embryotoxic effect, then there will be relatively little effect. So the, the timing of pesticide application relative to the bird's phenology is quite important. And then another important aspect is that I mentioned half-life, and this is because the persistence of the chemical in the environment will influence whether that chemical is still available to the birds when it enters a susceptible phase to that chemical. So half, long half-lives can greatly increase the uh, effect of chemicals on reproduction in McNest. We also uh, have looked at differences in chemicals with different mode of action or different adverse outcome pathways and have found relatively large effects depending on what the mode of action of a chemical might be. Any ideas as to why clutch size did not come out as, as important as you thought? Yes. Um, this is in part because McNest uses clutch size right now only as a measure of the, what's called the rapid follicle growth period. So this is the period when eggs are rapidly developing uh, within the ova and then moving down the, uh, the oviduct. And so clutch size is really not fully exploited in the current version of McNest. And I think that's partly why why we saw a lesser effect. We have already started working on a, a newer version of McNest that will enhance, it has some, some enhanced features, including uh, more enhanced exposure models and more realistic life history. And I think that uh, that second generation version of McNest will find that clutch size is more important. And can readers access McNest by looking up the website or getting information from the article? Oh, yeah, sure. It's available on our website uh, to download freely. It's written in the MATLAB programming environment, but users don't need MATLAB to run it. It's compiled as a standalone program. You can just download it and run it. Okay. So then, Matt, based on your experience, how would you like to improve the state of the science on avian risk assessment? Well, that's a really good question, and uh, your question involves both policy and science. I'll focus more on the science, but but comment a little bit on the implications for policy uh, at the end. So I think um, one of the more important aspects of avian risk assessment is to understand the nature of the tests themselves. So, for example, the bulk of the information used by McNess comes from the avian reproduction test. This is a test that's been criticized in the scientific literature for quite some time now. It's a test that was first introduced in the 1970s when chlorinated hydrocarbons were the primary concern. Uh, hearkening back to your intro on Silent Spring, these were the kinds of chemicals that were of concern when the test was introduced. And so the focus was on embryotoxicity and eggshell thinning. 
and the test was not necessarily designed for current pesticides, which may have very different effects. There's also another criticism of the avian reproduction test is that it has a historical focus on game birds, Bob White and Mallard. But the species of concern in agroecosystems are often passerines. I should note, however, that the current guidelines for the LD50s test include a passerine, but not the avian reproduction test. There's a big difference in nesting ecology between precocial birds like the bobwhite and mallard, whose young leave the nest upon hatching, versus altricial birds, which undergo a dependency period following hatching. And this may have really important consequences for understanding the toxicity of pesticides when these two different kinds of birds are exposed. Another important criticism of the avian reproduction test is that um, standard endpoints that are measured during the test may not correspond to observable events in the field. So, for example, the percent of eggs that hatch during the test may seem like an honest indicator of the percent of eggs that would hatch in the field. But in the test, these birds are both indeterminate layers. So in, in the test, eggs are removed from the parental birds and incubated artificially. And so you may get pens that lay 50 or more eggs in an avian reproduction test, whereas in the field, they would lay a clutch size that's much smaller than that. And so it's difficult to say for certain whether a reduction in the number of eggs laid when eggs are being removed will really correspond to the reduction in clutch size that might be observed for a bird that's only going to lay a typical clutch. And then finally, a final criticism that I'll mention of the avian reproduction test is that it focuses on dietary exposure only, but other routes of exposure such as dermal or inhalation are possible when pesticides are sprayed in agroecosystems with birds present. And I'll mention also that we're currently working with EPA's Office of Pesticide Programs to incorporate these alternative exposure pathways into McNest. So... You know, one improvement or, or one criticism of uh, current risk assessment methods goes back to the very tests themselves. But my opinion is that the greatest challenge in pesticide risk assessment for birds and perhaps for other taxa as well is laboratory-to-field extrapolation. It's very difficult to know how effects measured in a laboratory or pen study might relate to effects that would be observed in the field. For example, for the avian reproduction example, we need to incorporate background rates of nest failure. We need to understand how birds in a field situation may be more or possibly less sensitive to chemical exposure. In the avian reproduction test, there's no potential for avoidance behavior, whereas in the field, it may be possible that birds would avoid, avoid exposure. And what our real interest in ecological risk assessment for wildlife is typically in population level effects, whereas standard tests measure individual endpoints, endpoints to individual birds that can be measured. And so our, our real challenge, I think, in ecological risk assessment, and this is certainly nothing new to me, this, is, this has been talked about for quite some time, is to develop appropriate models and methods to extrapolate to population level effects. And I think McNest is a start at this process, but many, many challenges remain. And I think it would be premature to consider talking about, you know, how are we going to redesign, for example, the avian reproduction test or the LD50 test or something before we fully had the conversation of how we're going to manage 
models for extrapolating to population level effects. And this is where I think both the science and the policy are going to have to evolve in tandem. Thank you, Matt. It sounds like, at least with McNess, there's a pretty solid start on capturing the nuances with different life history traits at the population level. So we wish you the best of luck, and we look forward to hearing more from you and Rick Bennett. Well, thank you very much, and thank you again for uh, inviting us to participate in the podcast. You've been listening to Matt Ederson discuss his work to assess the risks of pesticide exposure on birds. Access the two companion articles by Matt and his co-author Rick Bennett in the October 2013 issue of IEAM. Just go to SeaTacJournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM podcast.